Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, we've got Skylar, an ex-professional player of yesteryear. I think he finished playing probably before I started playing semi-pro. So have a great discussion with him about that. His time at G Fuel, uh, working in the commercial and content team. And we have a great discussion around the disconnect that I believe between esports players and the people that are making business decisions for them, especially around the Call of Duty World League um, and how that's providing a bit more safety and functionality and some of his thoughts around how life after gaming should work for some of his mates who still play games today. Enjoy. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Skylar, we're live. Welcome. Yeah, it is. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. Yes. The first question I have to ask you, one that we didn't talk about off stream, is, is what, are you, what are you drinking at the moment? Is that G Fuel or, or something similar or something like that? No, it's, it's, it's something similar. Uh, it's a new project I'm working on with some people. Um, and that's ah. actually a flavor test. That is a good eye that you caught that already, by the way. Yeah, it was, it's funny. It's funny to me because I guess I've been like, like for me, you know, being a gamer and around for a long time, but I've been more of a coffee person. But since I picked up a couple of employees, you know, I've started to make more of these gamers that like to drink those, those kind of different supplements, like the G Fuel powdery kind of things. And it's been an interesting, you know, learning experience for me starting to drink some of those and, yeah, getting those caffeine hits, it's been interesting. So I'm, I'm long out of the energy drink space. I'll, I'll never do that one again. Um, but it's there's doesn't mean that I won't do a beverage. Uh, so I have a beverage kind of in, in the works right now. Still undecided if it's a ready-to-drink or a powder-based. But yeah, expect that one uh, by July or August. So Awesome, awesome. We've got yeah. plenty of stuff to talk about. But as we're, we've got people rolling in now to the LinkedIn and to the Twitch. And um, for those people who are watching, feel free to ask any questions you want at, throughout this time and we'll slot into the conversation. But Skylar, let us know a bit about your history, who you are and, and what you've done. Awesome. Okay. So uh, Skylar Johnson um, originally founded Team Envious 2007. That would have been January 2007. So a long time ago now. Uh, what are we? Yeah. Um, and then Envy originally was named Flatline for three weeks. Fun fact, some people know through another podcast I've done, um, changed that name real quick. And then Envious has stood the, the, I guess the, ter- what is it? Uh, stood the test of time. Um, and obviously still around, um, went on to, uh, quit, I guess, professionally gaming around 2013, um, moved to a company called G Fuel at around the same time. I helped establish them and their kind of place inside the gaming space as they weren't really active involved in that at the moment. Um, stayed there until late 2017. And then things got kind of weird. Um, I went to a Sunroom company, uh, oddly enough, and I did that just to take my creative team with me, showcase that we could work on more than just gaming um, products, non-endemics. We stayed in the non-endemic space, didn't tell anyone about it for roughly about a year. In that time, developed Control, um, as well as three other companies, two in which have dropped. And then March of last year, developed Paper Crowns, um, this creative studio. And now we're here. So that's a 13-year rundown, I guess, 12-year rundown. Good summary. Good summary. I guess like the the easiest question I always start off with is like the difference in 
the difference in esports in 2007 versus now um, and the scale. You know, Call of, Duty, Call of Duty, I feel, had like a pretty quick rise to being somewhat professional compared to a lot of the other leagues, I think because of like a lot of support of Activision. But still compared to, say, like the franchise league right now, it's still a completely different world back then. Yeah, so um, <laughs> financially, it, it was very trying because back then um, we didn't have the luxury of like living uh, at home still. We tried to do a team house in 2008. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that we were living in a team house. It, it probably contributed to a lot of that early on success as well. Um, but 2008, we had a team house, went relatively well, and that was in Minnesota. Um, and then obviously in 2009, 2010, that carried into North Carolina. Um, but back then, man, national championship price was a total all in 12,000, 2008. So if you won, you got $12,000. Um, in 2010, it was 18,000. So you, you could kind of see like the scale, uh, scalability of that. But to be honest, there were so many little tournaments back then that we were forced to win. That was like the, the bigger thing. Um, I think a lot of the new heads don't really understand like the difference between it wasn't wager matches back then. Like you couldn't get on and just play a quick wager. It was, Hey, you got to sign up on game battles, buy yourself these overpriced, no offense, uh, overpriced tokens uh, just to compete. And then if you didn't, you didn't win that, then you, you weren't getting paid. Right. So like, but our, we made it a yeah. goal, obviously. You got yeah, like the, the sheer amount of content of esports in those days is like something something I wish that would come back. I think we see it like a little bit in Fortnite. There's always so much going on, but the, you know, there's always so many lands that people are going to. But if I think to like Counter Strike, like when I played, there was always at least two online leagues running all the time, and then there was a bring your own computer land that was happening in every state at least once a quarter, and then there was a once or twice a year kind of nationals event where all the top eight teams would come to a land and play for five grand in cash. But you don't see that you know, as much now, it's it's more, you know, there's either constant big leagues where everyone's fighting for the big views, like in CS, or it's that structured but much slower pace of like a League of Legends or a Call of Duty or an Overwatch. Yeah, back then, I mean, we had the ability to branch out. I remember when 360 Icons, I don't know if you remember that side at all, 360 yeah. Icons was for the, the old school heads. Um, it was a basically same uh, game battles restructured uh quicker payouts quicker tournament structures it was more so for the player uh, a guy named ego made that we all loved it we loved competing in those uh that was actually a big deal for us those 360 icon tournaments um but yeah the the, the league in general obviously there was no league you know we, we were playing on pcls so a lot of people don't realize in 2008 2009 everything was online for call of duty until the national championship so there's like pcl1 which stood for pro circuit ladder one two and three um, but yeah, way different ballgame back then, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I guess that's the interesting thing between pro esports now. It used to be the whole, you know, it happened a lot in Australia, it'd be interesting to have it in the US. People always say, do it on land. You know, have these onlineers, people who would only ever perform online that come to land and they wouldn't perform. But it's not really like that anymore. Because even like, you know, I was at the Australian Open tennis and they had a $500,000 for Fortnite across two days. And the $400,000 solos tournament was won by a 15 year old kid. who got a hundred yeah. grand in his pocket. So now yeah. there's very lot onliners because there's just these lands where you can win these big money every few weeks. Yeah. I think, um, and the prep is different, you know, and it's only going to keep getting crazier, right? Like you think about like, I was just reading an article literally about a week ago about the health and uh, wellness industry for gaming. And in terms of like what you need to do to prep for a tournament post tournament, yeah. Um, mentally, physically, there's a lot. And back then you just didn't have it, you know, but it's good for the game, right? Like, um, I think the, the thing that's needing to be changed currently is an amateur structure system. 
Like I want to yeah. see a pro amateur league. Um, in fact, I've actually thought about trying to make that or be, be a part of that, which obviously, you know, there are some things going on behind the scenes that's going to drop soon. Um, but I think uh, something for the amateurs is needed. And I know right now you're in that glory of letting the pros get their, their moment. Um, but definitely something needs to happen a little bit more structured for the amateur than currently is, is I guess, delegated. Yeah, and I think I, I feel like everybody's trying to do, and I, I've said this in a podcast recently, maybe the one with PPD, Dota player, because he tried to do this for Dota in North America and it, and it fell over. I feel like there's unlimited companies like Mogul out there who are trying to do that, sign up for cash cups, you know, become a pro by getting lots of content, but none of them seem to ever work. You know, yeah. if you look at the financials of most of these companies, they're not around for a long time and they're based on tech. So often they sell the tech to the next person who carries the baton and tries again. But I feel like compared to when I came up, there was such a strong development where we had Cyber Gamer, where you had the open bracket, which was free to enter. You didn't win any money. You had Amateur, which was often like five, ten dollars a player. You might win five hundred. Then you had then you after you won that or came second, you could qualify for main, which is the next, you know, eight to 16 teams, a little bit more entry fee, a little bit more prize. And then on top of that is professional league. So that was a great way for you to start to play against people who are, you know, the 16th rank 16 to 32, which is where you should be, become better, win the leagues and and go up, which is exactly how I did it. But just like you were saying, it it seems to be so fragmented now that bar, say, League of Legends in Europe, I've, I've done a little bit of reading into that. That seems to be, have a very good kind of academy space besides that academy just seems to be an afterthought and like you said everyone i feel like so many businesses in esports right now they're all fighting to be the biggest and the best they're fighting yeah. to have the biggest 30 million dollar capital raise with the biggest 15 million dollar facility have the highest quality players win all the world championships but they're not thinking about how to actually get the next talent in when scump wants to retire or when ppd wants to retire or people like that one thing I can, I, that's such well said, man. I, I think the biggest thing that's going to happen out of that is the games, the league structures and all that's going to get better. When you think about like what, what the cycle is for a pro, traditionally it's play for a team, do what you have to do, and then what is that next step? And traditionally that, that next step for a pro player is to get involved with the developer, get involved with the league, whatever that can happen. Um, and I, I think that's going to cause the best version of Call of Duty to come out of that. So you're going to have like, the scump style person um helping develop pretty much everything you can um and i think having those pros set the rules set um there's just so many things that need to be done i I chat about a players union a lot aggressively Uh, i think a union's important as well so yeah that's a that's a good question actually if um like like this is this is something that i talked to loader and ppd about both dota 2 pros one one current coach one current player why is there no players' union? Is it that there's not enough time? The players don't think they have enough time to make one? Is there no one who wants to take control? Like, is there no one player who wants to take on the extra work? Like, what's the why, why isn't there one? Because you see people talking about it all the time. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it, right? Like, who's going to step up and do it? And then who's going to be trusted to do it? Um, that's the biggest thing is a lot of people will do, like, you know, there's, like, official lawyers of esports now. Official, um, there's official everything of esports. However... Who, who's gonna who's gonna be the guy that that really steps up to say this is what the league structure needs to be this is how we'll battle against it and then you need to get those pros to kind of back him right mm-hmm. and I think that's the problem is there's so much isolation the pros can't even get along as is because um, there's just so many things that are happening fast but what needs to happen just to look out for these players I think is going to be get a union structured system um, and I think yeah that, that's when everything's going to change a little bit so. Yeah, and I, I think, I guess, like, the rise of these player agencies is going to help a bit too, right? Because right. in the past, it just made zero financial sense to have a player agency. You know, when most players are being paid between zero to $200 a week, 
you can't make a business taking 10% of that unless you've got hundreds of thousands of players and then you can't possibly service them. But right. now that you're seeing, say, like Prodigy Agency, who we're dealing with at the moment, they've got a massive, well, they've got a large amount of massive Counter-Strike pros. And it makes sense because these Counter-Strike pros are easily earning, you know, 100 to 200K a year. So right. you can justify taking 10% of that and putting someone on two or three pros at a time, you know, paying their wage to, to kind of grow that business, you know, plus extra brand deals you bring through. And it might be up to them because, you know, as far as I understand, say, with the NFL and the NBA and how some of these other leagues work, they've basically got a standardised player contract across everyone. And the only right. discussion that really comes into it is just about the extras that are on top, whether it's a bit of extra money or a bit of extra benefits or shares or something like that. And that's when, you know, a lot of the, more that safety comes. And maybe that's part of it now where, you know, everyone is just fighting for that dollar and they're fighting to stay alive that they can't think into the future about maybe we could all make this a bit better because they're just trying to keep the lights on. A hundred percent. I think um, not only should we be focusing on kind of the internals of just the league protection, right, between player versus league, but also, what about the sponsors? You know, there's a lot of pros that had sponsors prior to this league activation. And if there's a conflict of interest, a lot of people don't know the kind of internal battle that's been happening there as well. Yeah. Um, and then that's it's been an issue, right? But a lot of those those things don't really come to the light yet just because there's no establishment of structure. And I think over the course of the next year, that's when things are going to happen. I think the window is going to close. We always talk about this esports window. I, I talk about it traditionally more than most. Um, and I just say that, there's a window for everything, whether it's a product, there's a window for, you know, the the certain structure that needs to happen. I think the league at the beginning of this thing tried to really run it themselves, right? And granted, it's still fresh, but you could tell how open they are to shifting things now, whether it was a structure system because they got the community fired up. This community runs everything, man. And that, that's one of the most powerful things is we cannot lose the community. Um, I actually saw at, at the Esports Awards when when... Richard Lewis said it, right? It was one of those things where it was like, hey, um, let's not lose structure of, of esports in general, right? We need, we need to hold tight to this one. So, Yeah, that and that individual sponsor thing you said is, is something I haven't, I haven't thought about actively for the COD League. I know some friends who participated in another franchise league and they weren't like if I said what it was, but they had similar problems. They had a competing sponsor on their jersey and this franchise-esque league they were in wasn't providing them with anything being in the league, no payment, but they had to drop that sponsor, which was paying them. So yeah. they needed to go more into the red just to pay for the flights and accommodation and couldn't you know, couldn't advertise their sponsor whatsoever. And it's the same with all of the videos about the UFC and the Reebok deal, right? All of these yeah. fighters who were struggling, who were getting paid $8,000 to fight once a year, they could at least make an extra 10 to 20 to 30 in sponsorship, but now that's cut for a $500 Reebok payment, a $1,000 Reebok payment, because you can't simply have any sponsors that conflict. Bigger problem is now that you have these, you know, the UFC guys, no offense to them, but they don't have the social media reach that some of these gamers have. They yeah. don't have direct contact to people, right? Like if you say, you take Scump uh, claiming a product and saying that he actually uses it, endorses it, you're going to believe Scump, it's direct to consumer, he's going to, you know, be able to market out, call it a day. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a very valid point. I, I think that issue hopefully is going to get resolved this year, though. I could see that happening, so... Yeah, that's that's really true. I mean, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. You know, the digital first nature of this audience, you know, there's so much more. I feel like there's there's potentially so much more money lost by these guys. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Well, I'm going to ask you a question back. Have you ever seen uh, this become a big issue in terms of the league not having uh, the ability to kind of catch fire because of these issues? Like, do you think there could be a situation where, where pros really stand up together, unified, whether... It, it has a, um, a union behind it or not to where it would stop the actual um, stop the league from being able to actually 
play, right? Like, is, is there a way where, where the players stand up and say, hey, listen, like we've had these sponsors or these are our rules or you can't change the patch right before this tournament? You know, like, yeah. is that going to become a thing? Because that's their reputation all the time, right? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting point. I've seen that in another vein. I've seen that before where players will refuse to use a certain sponsor's equipment. So let's say that they're sponsored by um, Razer, but they like to use a SteelSeries mouse because they've been using one for 15 years to play CS. And, you know, there's always that discussion. It, it happened many, many moons ago with um, the some of the current G2 guys, like the French and, and Belgian Counter-Strike guys when they That's signed different. with the TT Dragons as well. They didn't want to use the Thermaltake equipment and they didn't want to wear the jerseys. They didn't like the design. So I think there's... There's definite room for them to stand up, but it's always the fact of, you know, are they just going to get churned and burned? Is the next kid going to come in and, and play because he wants to be in the Call of Duty League? But, you know, it's not probably not the right way to think about things. So I think that, you know, if, if you can get these people to stand up, it's a good idea. And, and back to that same point about the unions, you know, I was I was part of someone making an industry body for a while, uh, which has been dormant for a bit now. And a lot of it is exactly like what you and I were saying, is that no one wants to step up and take charge. It's too hard. So the people that we put together to found this industry body, we're six or seven people who either are business owners or business leaders trying to grow a business in an emerging market. So it's like, how can we possibly dedicate another minute a day to try to do something else? The same thing is like, you know, is Scump going to step up? It's the name we keep using as an industry leader and lead this, or is he going to focus on winning the actual tournament to pay for his salary, to pay for his team and to keep building his legacy? Of course. And you already know the answer to that, you know? So I think... Yeah, the biggest thing is maybe getting a board, right? You could have people do lay the foundation of it um, and then just have that board kind of be an oversee because there's a lot that's going to go into that, right? And then the biggest thing is just getting the league. It's not league support, but players in that league support. And then how do you get everyone to agree? We can't even agree on rules. We can't, you know, we have, we have trouble in that front. So, Yeah, and, and an example for those people watching where this does happen is the is the CSPPA, so the Counter-Strike Professional Players Association. I got them open now on Liquipedia. And, you know, that was founded by Sir Scoots, someone who's been around in esports, you know, longer than you and I have been alive. Um, and and also they've, they've got a legal, they've got like, two legal advisors as well, um, and one of which is the CEO of the Danish Elite Athletes Association. And then, okay. like you said, they've got board members. They've got Zipex from Australis, you know, the best Counter-Strike team of all time. You know, right. Taco from MIBR, who's a Brazilian superstar. Tarek from Evil Geniuses. You've got exactly. Leash, you've got Nothings. So you've got three Americans in there. Then you've got Chris J from Mouse Sports. And then you've got MBK. So you've got people from France. You've got people from, from Denmark. You've got people from Brazil and the US. So you've got a, a good mix of players, all of which who have been playing in the top leagues, in Nothings' case, since he was like 15 years old in CS 1.6 right. years and years ago. So I think it's it seems to be the right thing. So who is the person then to take charge and to be that Sir Scoots in this situation? Yeah, that I, I can't. I mean, you want to say like for me, I'm I'm initially going back to the old heads, right? The people that have been here from the beginning, maybe potentially that are still playing. And they, there's some of those yeah. guys still out there, right? Like you have your your Claysters, your Scumps. Your I'm not going to say Aches. I couldn't see Aches really running that, but <laughs> we're going to throw him in there. But yeah, nameless. You know, like there's been Pac-Man. There's been players that have been here since I've been here, right? That that initial day is even even longer. Um, there's some players that have, are still competing. Actually, I don't know if there's any that are still competing that were playing COD three, but I know there's still there's some players that are competing that were playing COD four, right? So you want to take someone that has a storied history inside of this thing, really understands kind of what it's the biggest struggles are versus what what I guess the struggles are that we need to still overcome, um, and then kind of forward think a little bit, right? Like where are we going to see ourselves in a year? Because people are banking on these leagues, which I'm sure we'll get into the prices of these leagues being 
you know, that this is a lot of people's future. And with that being said, we need to find a way to maximize this thing from a player perspective, as well as um, obviously owner's perspective to where we're looking at more of a, of a five year, well, maybe a 10 year plan than a 20 year plan. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. So keeping the discussion around the Call of Duty World League, I'd love to get just your periphery thoughts from it. And then I'll, I'll pick some points and we'll, we'll dive in a bit more. In terms of CDL overall? Like yeah, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing, yeah, yeah. Th- thoughts of the league overall, everything from franchise fees to location-based teams, travel schedules, that kind of stuff. Okay, um, I'm, I'm going to go in hard and say I, I love the league in general. Um, I was a big supporter of a potential draft system just because of my roots in an NBA 2K thing that I, I went to recently. Well, mm-hmm. recently now, a couple years ago. Um, I love the draft schedule that they had. Um, I, I think that that would have been cool. Could have been something that they hype up. Uh, I love that each state obviously has, or I love it city based. I think that's awesome. That state, um, you obviously have countries now involved. Um, I love that the home stands are taking place. I, I think the structured system like that is okay. I, I love it all. Big supporter actually. Um, I don't think we're doing ourselves due diligence in representing it right. Um, I think that, and I've, I've actually been pitching this recently to some some companies or I guess some some parties involved where I think we need to do a better job of theming out the location. Uh, I think there needs to be some some guerrilla foot traffic, right? Where we need to go into these local colleges, high schools, et cetera, let people know that they're, these homestands are going on. Um, and I don't know who's responsible for that. I don't know what the budget looks like for the team in terms of the marketing pre-event. Are they running geo-targeted ads? Um, are, are they doing these things, right? And I tried to, to specifically stay up with each team if they're having a homestand, find out if they are running these ads, if they are running these marketing campaigns. Um, I, I, I see people complain that uh, there's not like a big, big, big banner sized uh, home screen when, when you load up the game, right? I think that sometimes like they're, they're making attempts, right? Um, we've seen that, but there's a lot of things that could be done differently. But then again, it's such a subjective opinion, but from a marketer and someone that, that likes to think that I can speak to a consumer a little bit. Um, I think there needs to be a little bit more prep done and treat each, each homestand like you would launch a brand campaign. Right. And I think you should deem that out. Um, I was a big fan of Minnesota protect the North would have been big for them. Ice out everything, you know, um, I would have made everything kind of ice over glazed over. And then like, for example, a team beats a team, you have the ice flying off of the one that won, you know, whatever the case is. Um, obviously not off the top of my head, but just, you know, sit down, have a creative structure around it. And I think then it, it, it do a lot better. Right. Um, I think there's there's something to be said about um, getting the people that are there involved more. So like maybe if it's like a two v two or if it's um, uh, fan cams, I've, I've I have a notebook full of ideas, I guess, just to run. But other than that, I, I think the the league structure by itself um, it's obviously going to go through some changes. It already is right over the course. Um, I think uh, it, it's just needed, right? Like we were needing to make this jump, and can Call of Duty do it? Um, it keeps getting compared to the Overwatch League. Obviously, we know there's some structural like similarities, but it's way different, right? Um, Overwatch is a game that hasn't been around forever. COD isn't. Um, COD has been around forever, and I think the mm. biggest worry that I had was destroying teams' legacies. I think the um, the like the phase, the optics, the envies. The, these these teams have like traditional real legacies, and it'd be sick to see like a legacy hour series where it goes back and talks about how that team got to this point, or even if it's based individual player based, right? How did that happen? Um, lastly, I'd love to see the, the cities own it more. Like I would love to see um, uh, ATL, for example, is one of the events coming up. ATL is such a good city in the U.S. and it has such a good like culture. Uh, I'm trying to see uh, that ATL culture um, kind of shown differently and wh- how those players are getting along there, interacting there, and 
uh, those type of things. Hope I answered that one without rambling. Yeah. Yeah, one of my one of my first questions is what what is the current um, state and, and city support like from the government for these kind of events? Like in Australia, we've got massive support from um, from the Victorian government here, like our state. They support the Melbourne Esports Open. You know, it looks like the Intel Extreme Masters from Sydney is moving down here now, which is the second fastest selling IEM in the world. You know, there's so much support here for everything sporting, and, and that's coming into esports. And you're even seeing it with specific um, councils and municipalities around Australia now too. Obviously there's been like a lot of support for high res and the stuff they're doing from the government that's why a lot of um people are moving into that kind of atlanta region but yeah is there is there much other support around the, the states yeah there's there's strong support especially now i'm seeing so many esports land centers popping up again it's funny we went through this brick and mortars dying land centers are dead and then all of a sudden yeah. esports becomes such That's a big cool, thing huh? and now esports are back and land centers are back and it's like what it's just it's the funniest thing right um but a lot of that comes down to, I, I think, yes, the cities are embracing it. They just don't know, right? And it takes the leadership of these teams and obviously got them there to really just educate, hey, this is what we need to do to make it successful. And then that goes into, you see a lot of the people that are running these teams, they're not from esports, right? Like you, you see some, you see that a lot more than we should. There should be heavy esports driven, um, even if it's like a mandatory consultant on each team. Um, I think that's important. So, yeah, that was that was an interesting point that uh, that Loader and I talked about a lot. So, there's a thing in Australia where some people call some esports organisation money orgs. So, there's some people who were born up from nothing, say like Fnatic, been around yeah. forever. You can't deny that they're part of original, you know, EG, Envy, um, Optic, um, you know, and even you could argue partly Nade Shot, you know, being the, the leader of 100 Thieves. But often what you have also is you have these money organisations with new esports consultants. There's a lot of money coming from the outside who don't seem to have that history in it. And a lot of loaders concerned from Alliance being a player-owned organisation and a small one that's never taken outside investment is exactly that same thing, is what's the authenticity of these people coming in and, and are they hurting the industry by coming in, throwing a bunch of cash, losing $10 million over the course of anywhere from one to five years and then exiting? So there's there's pros and cons, and let's talk about it how most people won't. Um, the pros are a lot of the people that are accepting this cash are people that haven't had that ability to accept this cash. So, of course, they're going to do it. You know, they, yep. they put in a lot of uncharted hours uh, building a brand, and, of course, they're going to take that cash. Is it bad for COD? Traditionally, yeah. Like when you, when you have non-endemics kind of running the show and if you give up that power a little bit or if you just don't want to push back because now you're finally getting what you earned. Because a lot of people in Call of Duty or esports in general, not Call of Duty, I apologize, deserve so much more than they've gotten, right? Because um, it, it, it extends way past like the Twitch of the world and those type of things, but the people that are actually making that type of money. Um, I, I would say that, the non-endemics that are hiking up the prices is the biggest problem for me. The non-endemics that are coming in and even sponsoring companies at astronomical numbers. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the companies inside of the space that started here, I'm not going to say the four gamer by gamer, but the classic slogan that's been thrown around 50 times. A lot of those yeah. companies are going out of business or can't keep up and they've been here forever. So like they built their, their following to 50,000 followers and they just don't have that dedicated following because someone else can come up with the exact same product and push them out. Right. Um, and then even, even that man, like I've been a part of getting the official so-and-so of so-and-so, right. Like uh, of esports. Um, I've gotten a couple of those and those don't really mean much. Um, everything is community driven. And biggest thing I love is our community will spit you out if you don't belong. Um, I think that's a, a very powerful thing. And I think a lot of people aren't used to it because, um, you know, everyone's got an opinion. And I feel like our community is fastest to make a meme or a TikTok or whatever needs to be done to throw that opinion out there. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, I, I think if, if we can stand strong in that regard as well, uh, but yeah, get those prices down, man. Because 25 mil to me, granted, I wasn't involved. Um, I had I had a lot of people throw some opinions my way on what should be done. I just thought a lot of those prices that that are being thrown out, the only thing that's deserving is the player salaries. A lot of people argue and go, well, how is a sub that that doesn't ever play and they're getting 50 to 80K? How is that, how is that justifiable? And I could say a lot of those dudes have been playing forever, never placed in the top four, and they've never made cash. And their parents are telling them to hang it up. So give them the money. <laughs> like pay, pay out what's needed to be paid out because um, it's been a long run. And it's at the end yeah. of the day, they, they're the ones that are bringing everything, right? When, when you look at like um, a lot of these players on the rosters, they're bringing in the value, you know, that these teams wouldn't have had. Uh, and obviously, you know, that that's why we chose them, et cetera. But there, there's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, and I, I know some players that got a signing bonus, which is big. I think the signing bonus was yeah, nice. much needed. I don't know if you've heard any of that. Those, no, yeah. See, that's another, maybe, maybe they make those public, you know, like well, when is that going to go public? That's what I want to know. Like when is, when is some of that information going to really go public to where, you know, like if you're watching, um, I don't really watch baseball much, but you always see like a crazy signing bonus attached to a 30, $35 million contract, right? Um, I think yeah. a lot of that information going public wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, I think if all the the league talks are financially based, then some of the player talks and the, the cash outs should be public as well. It's personal opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. I think, like, for, for me, it sounds like... Um a lot of our discussion is it's just too much for one of these for any of these companies to take hold of at any one time, right? You're expected to create a brand new company. You're expected to know how to hire players. Then you've got to build yourself a home facility and know how to market that. You know, mm-hmm. you need to know how to build an online brand and use someone like yourself, Paper Crowns, to build that whole legacy. Then you need to get a coach for your players. You need to make sure they're paid on time. So you need that. You know, you need community management. Then you need to go sign some sponsors before the league even starts, which we all know is really hard to get sponsors if you don't have any case studies of doing anything in the past. So there's just so many things. And then to me, that like a common thing I say a lot with these esports teams is what do they see as a non-essential service? So I think like most of these times when um, new physiotherapists come to me, mental coaches, exercise, dietitians, and they say, hey, I want to break into esports. I'd love to attack the tier two market. I say, look, to be honest, to them, you're a non-essential service. There's no way you're going to get a shoe in because they're too busy trying to sell a sponsorship. They're right. too busy to get to the event or to find the next player or to, you know, recover their players in Fortnite who they just signed 15 and lost 10 on the same day kind of thing. So they're just just fighting and they can't think about that. And that's, yeah, I feel like, I mean, it happens a lot of business, right? But there's so many problems that we're talking about now that don't exist when money is not as much of an object or not as much of an issue. If you think about the NBA, A, history, how long it's been around and all of the things have been put in place for, um, you know, who to hire, when to hire, what position should be around and how you should market and, you know, brands are there willing to sponsor, et cetera. But also money because you're thinking then about, okay, how do I maximise my $30 million signing contract rather than how do I come up with 500 bucks you're about to pay for the flights to get to this event? So it becomes like a very different thinking exercise in that case. And it's more like fine tuning instead of just yeah struggling along. I, uh, well said. I think we could um, potentially do a CDL loading deck, you know, like a, or an, an onboarding deck. So like when someone comes on, they, they know what to expect. And maybe those positions are broken down. Like I said, key areas to success are at least in our opinion. Right. Um, and th- there are some of those details that have been done that I've seen. Um, oddly enough, people share. But um, I, yeah, well said. There's a lot of different positions that need to be filled. And then I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing is inconsistencies between teams. 
Like think about a team that puts in, let's say, 500K for, for a media spend, right? Um, maybe even a mil for the year. You, you have um, a million. You have a, a company set. Nah, that'd be extremely high. So let's not do that. But you have a set number set for media spend, which they do. Um, but you're telling the proper stories. You're setting the proper graphics. Like have you seen the comparison between teams and teams and graphics? Or like uh, uh, any digital design? Like have you seen? But next time you're just watching a CDL get, uh, match, Compare yeah. how a certain team says that they win versus another team or, yeah, or lose, et cetera. And it's traditionally, yeah. it's night and day. You have some people that look like they're designing in Microsoft Paint, and then you have other people that, that look like they're actually paying attention to it, setting a campaign structure. But like, where's the videos yeah. at? Um, where are... The, there's just so much, man. Uh, that there are so many things that I, I, I wish would be changed, but I know they are going to change. So it, it's me just complaining. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm complaining early in hopes that they'll they'll happen. And once you give it time, there's just a lot of moving pieces and it's me being very selfish. But I, I want to see those selfish moments happen sooner than later. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said, it, and ultimately it comes down to the players and they're the people that you're looking to be supported. Right. And I, I talked about a, <clears throat> a case study or an anti case study of a team who I know in the past who basically blew all their money on their players' salaries under the guise of, I'm trying to look after my players and that's why I'm paying them more than everyone else. But ultimately the company dies because they, they can't stay afloat. They don't have any staff to do BDM or sales or yeah. um, look after them or, you know, bring any money into the door. So that investment goes out. And that's, you know, that's ultimately what it boils down to. So for you, as an, as an ex-player, like when did you know it was time to, to hang up the controller and to move on to the business side of things? When I sucked. Uh, <laughs> that's the truth. I, I, uh, for me, you know, I, I always played like a support role for my teams. So it, it was not easy, but it was relatively... Um, I, I always got to step up during search. Like I, I was kind of known as that search and destroy player that, that that was my role to hold and then support where I would just support the the objective player, obviously, because it was a little different then with some of the game types and just things that we had. Um, but I remember I, I couldn't place inside the top 16. Uh, I, kept, or I, I kept getting 16th every event, um, like three or four events in a row. And that was just it. It was one of those, dude, I, I can't handle the 16. And a lot of people would say like, oh, 16 is great. But when, when you're used to winning and you're used to like being on top and those type of things, it just it wasn't great. It was actually the worst feeling ever. Um, and I kept trying to take teams that weren't really known at the moment and try to just put them on the map, even in the slightest, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think at that time I was on denial before denial was denial and had their crazy situation. Um, and then another team called Aware, just like random teams that I would just cycle in and out. And a lot of that was just because of the sponsorship money. So at the time, it was still a struggle in Call of Duty, right? And there were your established teams. And I was doing this whole Envy Black thing versus Envy Blue. And then I, I told myself, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt that brand by dividing those too much. So after uh, Envy Black, which was mine, I kind of parted ways um, in terms of to the public. And I shifted that to just going to these events, playing Black Ops 2. Um, I had a solid team or at the time what I thought, but definitely when I started just, um, Placing any anything outside the top twelve to me was a loss at these events. So definitely sixteen, yeah, three three sixteen events. This is when I when I call it quits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds it sounds like something, and it's interesting. I I played a similar role in in Counter Strike, a support rifler role, and yeah, it's it's funny you discuss that, and it's really interesting talking to. This is a completely different point, but you know, experts online and, and seeing what people think of your play um, versus what actually happens. I think a really common one, I'm not sure if you're too versed in the CS team, but like the early NIP team, 
right. who burst onto the scene in CSGO. They won they won something like seventy one and zero was their was their wins on land at the start. They won the first like thirteen events back to back. They lost two maps, I think it was, but they, they never lost a series throughout the whole thing with the winners right. bracket the whole way. But there was one guy on there for Flaren who obviously paid played a kind of support role and just copped so much shit all the time. From the start to the end, you know, you need to kick him. He's not fragging. He's not doing well. You say, but they're winning. So why would they kick him if they're winning? There's obviously a reason, you know, why this why this guy's involved there because it's either moral support or he's calling the shots or you know something. There's some special source in there. And those are the things that I don't think we'll we'll ever get credited for, right? Like, um, I think anyone that plays a role, even now, you know, like I, I remember back in the day, man, you'd have like, you ever hear of a game game type called sabotage? This is super yeah. old school cut. So super old school cod, there's sabotage going back and forth. Um, and that was actually on on the pro circuit ladder. I remember there was a team we're playing, not gonna name drop, I don't even know if he's still around, but you know, the the dude ended up going like twelve and seventy. So he goes twelve and seventy in the sabotage, but he was the objective player. Granted, they they lost, right? At the very end of the match. It was in like overtime for what seemed like twelve hours. But the dude twelve and seventy is ridiculous, right? That's almost like, and mind you, you know, this isn't Halo where you're carrying a flag around. <laughs> you still have a gun, so you can't use that excuse. Um, yeah, they, there's been players, man, that that just uh, they really own those objective roles as if they don't have guns, you know. But at the same time, there's also been players I've, I've teamed with that are super, um, you know, the super selfish slayers that you have to accommodate around them. Like I, I know when I was teaming with uh, Stainville and Proofy, I knew that they were going to be posted. Those are post players, posted top, whether it's high rise, whatever map would be at that time, I guess. Um, but you know how they're going to play, and so you have to you have to let them get the get their kills, and then you just push the effort. Um, but yeah, I think the communication aspect of, of esports is awesome, uh, often overlooked. Um, I think that's going to be more of a thing, is like uh, just it, the reactions, you know, everything. I, th- I think that's where where um, like you said, why why. If it ain't broke, don't don't fix it, right? Uh, we used to have a player yeah. that would never leave top high ground on any map. So his his whole objective was take his you know the drill, take your AR, sit sit certain points in the map, push up, move, rotate, etc. So yeah, yeah, I, I've I've been there. Good talk yeah, to yeah. Scott again, by the way. L- yeah, that's this. yeah, that's right. That's that's really interesting. There's um there was a strat that we used to do sometimes, especially on a map like Train, which is heavily counter terrorist sided. Where I, I think it was a player called Crowley, and I. Or maybe Crystal, guy from the Nordics or somewhere somewhere in EU, and I used to take his role sometimes, which was literally to bunny hop out and die, and then tell my enemies where the team is. Because right. one thing that I noticed today that that hap- I didn't know that's happening COD, but now it makes sense after watching a little bit of the pro league this morning is is trading. And for those people who don't know, often what that means is that if you die, your teammate needs to trade and needs to kill that person instantly. And if you're on the attacking side, generally that's an advantage. If, if the numbers are even, you're winning because you've got so many different opportunities for you to go to different bomb sites and fake out and that kind of stuff. And that's the whole point in this case is, you know, we're a tight-knit team and our idea, very similar to the Virtus Pro team and the Polish guys, was to always make it a 3v3, a 2v2. And our team, you know, our teammates would use their skill combined together as as a tight unit to then win it out from our great strategy from there. Whereas if we were just in a 5v5 situation getting mowed down or a 1v1 where we didn't have as many skills as they did because we were much younger and, and inexperienced players, that, you know, things wouldn't go so well. So often I would have a shitty kill-death ratio because literally my job is to die. <laughs> and you that's just- because... 
I was the guy through the nades. I was never that sharp, but I was the one who was either calming my team down or hyping them up. And that's that's what a lot of my job was with, throughout that time and to keep people on that level head and make sure people didn't tilt, which in those days, I mean, happened all the time. You see any videos from old Counter-Strike or old Call of Duty, people screaming and shaking because they got too much adrenaline. So, You're yeah. right, yeah. Um, there, yeah. There's a lot of those moments. I think strategies inside video games are the, are, are the best things, right? And esports in general is, is such a strategy-based game that I, I love Counter-Strike for its – or search and destroy for its classic game mode mentality of like there's a lot that goes into that man um there was yeah. a lot a lot of times where we would try to just do things that were so unconventional outside the box because you know what you know it better than anyone once a, a game or game mode has been played on a certain map for so many times there's certain things that are just expected right like whether it's a smoke whatever happens so you know yeah. what's going to be there and then it's up to you to hit this certain shot so instead of hitting that certain shot we would we would pretend, right, that we'd have someone watching it, fire blank in the air, whatever, smoke a certain area, run back around, like, you, you know, and I think that's when it gets real, really fun, but people don't realize that you did it. So internally, you're like super hyped that you did something outside the box and to everyone else, it's like, oh, they, they got to kill using a smoke, you know, but it's like, it's, it's, it's way different, you know, um, obviously being in that situation and planning for something. And that's, the biggest thing is is that prep and plan time. You know, I, I think when you had for COD, Counter Strike never had to deal with this, but when you had people flying around, that's when a lot of things got weird. Uh, I hope that never happens again. Uh, just because yeah. that's that's when the game completely changes. I am I'm not even gonna say the word, but yeah. Uh, when people are flying around, it was uh it's just one of those things that I don't think belongs in COD and I don't think you should be throwing throwing that in the game, right? Like I think there's two sides to that. I've heard people say, uh, oh, you should be able to adapt. It's all about the meta adapt to this. It's like, no, dude, like there's a game and then there, there's there's coming up with random crazy things along the way. So Usually the, you can instantly tell if someone has no idea about competitive play when they say that you need to adapt. Like, for example, there was a league here in Australia which was televised and the way that the map, the pick bands were done was on a spin wheel. So they had all the maps on a wheel and they'd spin it like Wheel of Fortune. I don't know if you have that in the US. We have, yeah. we have in Australia. Spin it and then whatever it lands on, that's the pick or the band. And, and you just know after years of playing at BYAC lands against, you know, just random people you'd have to beat to get into the finals, they would always say that kind of stuff. They'd be like, oh, you know, it's just, it's just part of it. It just makes it more interesting. It just, and you're like, no. <laughs> like the, the great thing about esports is, A, like you said, the strategy, and B, what makes a good esports game, in my opinion, is a limited and controlled amount of randomness. Like, sure, sometimes you can get a running headshot, but it doesn't happen very often. And you know that most likely if they're running along with a pistol spamming left click, they're not going to hit you. And if they do, it's unlucky, but there's only a 5% chance. Even in, like, Dota 2, yes, sometimes there's an item that has a 25% chance to stun, but you know they have that item. So you can factor that account in. And, of course, you're mad if they stun you on the first hit instead of the fourth or the eighth or the twelfth, which can happen sometimes. But, hey. You know, you can factor that in. But the fact of something completely random, let's say that every three minutes one person dies on the map, you don't know who it is, it just happens. Like, you know, that's unacceptable. It's not just war, this makes it fun. Like it's not it's not competitive at that stage. It's such a weird balance, man, because I think simplicity makes the games the best, right? If you have a a game that's simple, but it's um and when I say simple, I don't mean like uh I I just mean the 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 banned items list, right? Like I, I remember in Call of Duty, um a lot of people don't, don't know this, but like when you think about having three stun, right? Back in the day, there was everyone was playing with three stuns, and wow. they, they yeah, it was a nightmare. Um, so whenever you you were on Sabo or anything like that, you would just get stunned out. You couldn't move, you know. And yeah. once you get stunned three times in Call of Duty, you might as well just put your controller down anyway. Um, and yeah. then you, the people would stun check everything. So then what they did say they said, okay, listen, we're gonna go one stun or flash, and then you're you're gonna get one nade. 
And that when that system happened, it was so much better because then it caused people to actually think when you put four players with three stuns on the map, you might as well just call yourself like it's hide and go seek at that point, wherever you throw your stun, let's hope to hit. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that simplicity style rules um, is something I'll always love. And yet again, that's why I go back to kind of old school COD a little bit. But then again, I'm, I'm the classic old school guy when it comes to COD. You know, the only reason I say that is because I can go back in my day. It was a lot easy, uh, or e easier in, the, in this regard. But I also think viewership is just so much easier to understand uh, when there's less going on. So, mm, mm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. You know, Battlefield 2 was my first eSport that I played. And um, while I love that game, I have a tattoo of it on me, but I still wish I'd, I ended up playing Counter-Strike due to the opportunities I could have been afforded to me. But the fact that 32, well, I think traditional Battlefield 2 was often played 16 v 16. And in the traditional game mode, everybody would uh, spawn in with four grenades. <laughs> so um, you think about how many grenades that is. So the start of like Strike at Karkins, where the two enemies would spawn pretty close to each other, it was called Strike at Nadeland for a reason. Because 16 people would just be hurling nades at each other nonstop because they'd be getting resupplied and it's just nades flying right. all the time. So when the pro mod came out and everybody's limited to one grenade, like that made a lot more sense. You know, you didn't have to dodge dodge all these grenades all the time like you're so running up the bench of Gallipoli or something like that. Pretty yep. ridiculous. Fun and fact, I, I wonder how many um, maps in esports have actually been called Strike. I feel like there, there's a strike in every, yeah. every esports title there is, so... Yeah, that's pretty true. That's pretty true. And the other really interesting thing to me about Call of Duty was the pre-nades, always mm -hmm. deciding whether to run or not. You know, a lot of people call them nerd nades. Um, I, I commentate a little bit of COD 4, but on PC myself. And yeah, it was always yeah. really interesting to watch the, you know, the nerd nades. Do you throw it? Do you not? Do you run? You see people hesitate and, you know, yeah. you do the double, triple fake where you don't throw the nade. You know, you, you take that break for one and a half seconds to hope that they, that they wait and then run through it. I promise you, man, we were one of the nerdiest because <clears throat> we stole a lot of our strategies from COD4 PC, right? Like those dudes were next level. So whether it was a pre-nade um, and, and then the nades back then, you could throw those like 500,000 feet. Like mm. you, you could watch a nade just fly across the map, you know, no matter yeah. what. Um, yeah, you throw out of a three-story building. Like that crazy, crazy, man. And that, But that led to yet again more strategy, man. I loved bomb checking. Right. Like I loved having a spot where you would be set up maybe outside of an area where maybe you couldn't get into. Um, and you, you could definitely just stun and bomb check. So like we would have a player slide every, let's say, seven, 15 seconds, whatever it was, because you knew you had a 7.5 uh, plant time. So if you yep. rotate over, go to your stun check, he's not on bomb. Right. And then you have some rotate stun. And then we would just cycle players in and out. And then people couldn't plant the bombs, you know, so they're going to they're forced to push the effort. You know, the drill forced to come to you. And that's easy picking. So, um, yeah, I, I think those nade spots will make video or make esports something special for me for a long time. I hope that that was never go away. So. Yeah, bringing bringing back a lot of memories. <laughs> good. There's, That's a, what I'm there's a good there's a good question in the uh, in the LinkedIn live chat. I'm just reading out here. So James Harrison, the CEO of Elite Revenue Group, um, this would be a really good one for you to answer, Skylar. He's asking about our view on how well people manage their finances in the community, especially the up and coming stars. Do they? I mean, can you can you say? I have um, I have a friend who does a lot of the pros account, like he's an accountant. Uh, he does a lot of the taxes, and um, there's certain players right now that I know are learning to invest. So powerful, good for them. Um, but in terms of actually taking care of their finances, not good at all. Think about think about the way that they earn their money, right? So you go from. Um, and this isn't everyone, obviously, for me to sit here and write a lot. These are like my friends I'm speaking on. So clearly, a lot of them are killing it. Um, but there's some pros that went from making zero dollars living in their parents' basement um, to then actually making a solid living, whether it be from YouTube and then Twitch money 
And then what starts off that is is the the actual salary. I remember back in the day, it was such a battle to get like salaries from uh, these orgs because the COD was so far behind. So like to even know that someone was getting like a back then, maybe like a $3,000 salary was like, oh my God, did you hear, you know? And that was like crazy. Um, yeah. so I think when you're given that, that bulk load of money at once, it's like, you know, you see all the players or not all the players, but you see a lot of players get those nice cars first. And then you can gauge how much a player has just from clearly what, what's going on in their life and how active they are. And then I'll never forget. You see players that are, that are rocking their traditional Astro backpack. And then the next event, they show up rocking a Louis, uh, <laughs> like a Louis Gucci backpack. Right. So yeah, yeah. I think overall players managing their finances is such a, a personal thing, obviously for a lot of them. And I think people are going to do better. Um, but now they don't have as much time to spend, you know, like now, now it's, it's grind mode, go mode. So, um, I think if anything, it's just good for the guys to get into some investing, get into some real estate. I'm, I'm trying to see, um, a big bulk load of COD people come together and start like a real estate house. We're just scooping up properties, um, throwing equal amounts of money. There's, this is where it gets yeah. fun. Like we're talking about fun things right now, things that can actually happen. Um, and if, if I have the ability to work with any of them on that, I'd be, uh, yeah, lights out. So. A really good question though. yeah it was really interesting you were saying about like the the gucci louis backpacks there's one one thing i noticed like if you were to have a scale of iced out esports players from like from like zero to like the hundred emoji you'd have starcraft probably sitting around zero because a lot of those people don't care necessarily and a lot of it's different culture you know then you're kind of going up and then you've probably got counter-strike you know sitting somewhere at two-thirds three-quarters where like the the adidas the adidas nfd was like the shoe of counter-strike for a long time when streetwear started to become a thing and then it went into yeezys etc but then you've got full 100 emoji is the call of duty guys where even the aussie players were all gucci louis yeezys driving bmws Mercedes, you know all that all that kind of stuff definitely do you think um and that's what i was gonna say you, you think that's just caught or do you think that that's driving from youtube like in that start both i think i think a lot of it is the i think a lot of it's the culture if you look at the culture of starcraft 2 um it's led by koreans which are very meek people um and when you're talking to starcraft 2 fans in person or on the forums they're very different type of person typecast that it's often in counter-strike or is in call of duty if you look at the way that they compete and play as well it's very bad mannered to say anything but that isn't nice in StarCraft, and people would talk about it for weeks about how BM that is, which is the short term for that. Whereas in Counter-Strike, you'd have people standing up yelling at each other. I was probably the loudest on my team. There was a guy who had a personal vendetta against me during my first and only kind of large national tournament. I remember I you know, ran up mid and I killed him in the first two rounds in a row. And he was the guy that I killed in my first game at that tournament, which was a great feeling. I was, yelling, I was yelling so loud that I was shaking and I couldn't aim properly. Um, but then you see next level, you've seen some pretty cringe stuff in the past with Call of Duty players where they're standing up screaming each other's faces. It doesn't happen as much these days, thankfully. But I think that's all tied. I think that, you know, CS, often back in the day, you would see people rock up to lands in, you know, flip-flops or thongs, we call them in Australia, shorts and a singlet. Like, you would never see that in, in any of the other titles. You'd see people who, you know, with backwards caps, you'd see a lot of tradies playing Counter-Strike with trades people. You know, you'd see different different types of people. They're much more loud. They're much more aggressive and outgoing. And mm -hmm. this is a 
broad generalization, but I think you can see that a lot when you look at the professionals as well. Like, look at a StarCraft 2 professional versus an Overwatch versus a CSGO versus a Call of Duty. I think you can probably see that scale, you know, from from this, from the start to the end. And I think the dress just matches, you know, what that thing is. It matches who you hang around with. The same thing is, like, um, there was a really good book I just finished um, by Seth Godin about marketing, and he's kind of... Say like part of what he says, and I'll probably butcher it. Is people always ask themselves: Is does someone like me act like this, or does someone like me buy something like this? So if you're a cod kid and you're meek, and maybe you're more like that Starcraft type cast where you're a bit more introverted, but you start playing at these lands, everyone's standing up screaming at each other, everyone's flexing their Rolex, everyone's flexing their Gucci watch. There's all the pros are posting their new BMWs with their signing bonuses. Then you would think to yourself, well. If I'm in this Call of Duty league, a person like me has to portray this type of thing. Or if I'm an influencer, I have to go to festivals. I have to wear active wear. I have to do, you know, A, B, C, D. I have to post about mental health and I have to post about, you know, happiness and wealth and like all this kind of stuff. I hope not. I hope, I hope it's not a forced post about those topics, but it's, it's so true. I think also it's, it's age of maturity, right? Like how long has Dota been around? You think about yeah. that. Uh, you think Long-time. about some some of these games and in cod man it, it's funny that we're talking about this because the, the people that we are talking about these cod pros like i've known since they were 14 13 you know uh, a lot of them majority of them um and it's crazy the the biggest thing is the cycle of new pros it's not that there's not a lot of new pros you know like not a lot of new pros come into the scene compared to how many players there are and that's one of the things where the pro the pro side of the world is so protected and it's always been like that. And then you can see those up and coming players. Like, almost, if you've been in this con scene long enough, you've seen each person have their moment. You know, like I remember watching Attach. I, I knew Attach was going to be something special. I was like, damn, this kid is going to be really good. Um, there's players like uh, just any, anyone across the board has had like their moment of like, wow, that will be the next pro. He's a pro. And then something happens in his career, whatever the case is. But the pros are, are very protective of the castle who comes in there who, who's welcomed in you know and then you have other players that force their way in they can't be denied you know i think skump was one of those players way back in the day i remember uh, i've mentioned this before but in 2010 he was playing on a team called fear um i wa- remember watching him on mw2 terminal kid was just so dirty like so good at what he was doing and that was back then that's 2010 that's 10 years ago skump was the same kid just slaying he just didn't have kind of the the smarts obviously that he had and started developing over the course of time and then you look at black ops the original started really popping and that's you know it's the rise of each player um you have krim who was a cod four going to halo coming back crazy right and then you have these halo kids that came over that i love to death like uh enable formal all these it's, just, it's crazy each person has such a good backstory and I hope I hope they touch on those. That's that's one of the biggest things is I hope that those backstories get touched on eventually. Um, somehow you got to talk about each one. Um, and then please let's get a Hall of Fame. Let's please get a Hall of Fame together. Um, a lot of these pros deserve it, especially anyone that was on the, those Black Ops Two teams that did those runs, or the Optic teams, or the NB team. There's a lot of people out there that really deserve that as well. So. A big part of what you're saying too that resonates well with me is is um, around the pros and that being that revolving door and that's the sign that the scene needs a bit of a shake up yep. sometimes. So like an easy example for that is Australia. Think like Counter-Strike 1.6. We only ever had one team who ever went overseas team immunity and because of that they had all of the sponsorship. They had the only cash sponsorship and they could afford to buy any players they wanted. So wow. if there was a tier two team that would start to be good, and this happens in every developing region, you know, in the history of esports, where there's one team who kind of has all the power, all the money. 
so that when it when some star team starts to come up in a game, they'll gut it. You know, they'll buy out two or three of the players and then they'll yeah. go at the top. Or you had, say, what we had in Counter-Strike Source where you had, like, team immunity and you had archaic. Well, you had team immunity, archaic, and sequential, the top three teams, and that's 15 players. And there's a revolving door of 25 players that would just swing between those three. Some would retire and then they'd kind of, half of them would switch from team immunity to archaic to sequential and they just kind of move around and around in circles. But no one ever else ever got that opportunity to break into that market because you know they had those little friendship groups and i think that's another thing that you see in call of duty and in counter-strike that you don't necessarily see in a lot of the other ones too you know i can see a lot of these dota guys talking about taking the youngsters really seriously um i think it's changing a lot in cs now as well thinking back to like swag um you know braxton who broke into the market at like 15 years old because he was those plays what you were saying and discussing it with some pros when you know when i was younger like like 19 21 playing you know that semi-professional lifestyle everybody hated kids they called them pre- <laughs> for prepubescent and if yeah. a 13 year old ever tried to play with you you would cuss them out and say no there's not a chance and now it's the opposite they're like i want to find that 13 year old whiz kid because i know that i can train him to be an absolute star and he's going to be like you said with scum he's going to be playing the t- top level for the next 10 years which is ridiculous by any sports standard yeah, and and those those exist, right? And this is where esports compared to traditional sports gets crazy because the player's lifespan, and is it going to come down to eventually where you only get X amount of time in a league, right? Or can you see the same face for twenty years because their fingers still work the same way? <laughs> because yeah. mine surely didn't. Um, yeah. You know, but. yeah. Yeah, and that's what and that's what I talked to Loader a bit about as well, who decided to retire, and and to PPD as well, who plays more of a support role is. Yeah, when, when does that come time? Like, what is the actual lifespan? You know, one of my friends who played in Fnatic CS 1.6, um, uh, DSN, like, I forgot his name in the last podcast. I felt so bad. So, Harley Orville, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, he was saying, we were talking about Zift, who's, um, you know, been playing for Fnatic and stuff for a long time. And, you know, he's reaching in his low 30s. And I asked, you know, when when is the time? And he said, about now. Like, if you're in your low to mid-30s and you're not playing a support role or you're not an in-game leader, like, usually that's the time you have to start hanging up. You can't be the main fraggy. You can't be the star who's getting all the kills anymore. Not yet. There's going to be one, though. Yeah. There's There's always one, right? Yeah. Like, who's the Tom Brady? Isn't he? Isn't he? Like, in his late 30s and, you know, he's got a bit of a dad bod and he doesn't even look like he lifts weights. But, hey, he's an amazing player and he's one of the highest paid athletes in the history of Earth. So. Yeah, sometimes they come out. But for you, besides the Call of Duty um, talk around the World League and, and the players and stuff, so what's what's life after play like for you? Because you, I guess, peaked really early as far as, you know, the lifespan of esports goes. Like you were saying, there's no salaries. There was no prize pools over $20,000. There's right. no sponsorships that are more than, you know, at that stage probably twenty grand a year, um, right. most of which are just products or, a, you know, a, a scuff 5% off code that you try to make some money through Twitter, you know, spruiking. So what what's the path for you when you say, okay, help found a team, played a lot, tried to bring a lot of kids up, it's time to hang it up. What's what's the next step? For me, it's just legacy building, right? I think um, each thing that you become a part of, you just want to make the best. Um, and that's, that's where my mindset is always. And I think the envy, it, it's so crazy to see a team that I made in my mom's basement be split across so many different platforms with Empire, with Fuel. Um, you know, that, that, that to me shows me that I can literally do whatever I want. Um, and I think that's what I'm doing. You know, I think uh, we dropped Control, which is a meal replacement, um, soon to be in Australia. Shout out to you, uh, which hopefully I can send that down first. You could try. Um, 
that was because sedentary lifestyle leads to a lot of unhealthy people, right? Um, and it was the same thing in G Fuel uh, when I was kind of running that. It, it's it's bringing a healthy alternative to something. And for me, control was the brainchild. You know, that's that's my baby. That was one of those ones where I think uh, I, I just wanted the community to have something that we could say, hey, listen, this is our, our it's not meant to replace every food item you eat. It's just meant to be here for you to support it. Um, so control is a good one. And then paper crowns is really just creative expressionism. So it's like, we're, we were doing all these campaigns, but white labeling them for everyone. I had nowhere to put our, um, our work under. So we created paper crowns as a digital agency and just handle everything from start to finish. Um, so we've been doing services for a lot of different companies on, in inside of our gaming space as well as out. And I just want that to be the next best thing. Um, and then the, dude, the, it's everything. There's so many things. Like we have four different companies I think we're working on and I have just so many talented people around me. It's, it's crazy, man. I, I think life after esports has been better um, because I remember I was begging people to pay us our tournament winnings. Uh, like if you go look at our, our pages, you know, we took everything so serious. Like I can't even tell you, like you, you've heard of game battles, obviously. Um, our, our COD 4 team, I still went back and played COD 4 after we were done scrimming. I think during um, Black Ops or what, whatever, during NW3 or whatever it was, where we got 1,500 wins, I believe, is what the goal was. So we had 1,500 wins, 115 losses. And then our MW2 was 500 wins, like zero losses. It, it was like a serious thing, right? Where like you, you would just, you, the game battles meant everything to us. And that was just because it was a representation, a direct representation of our team versus the world. Obviously, in those matches, you're not playing crazy tournaments, et cetera. But that's why we would double it up and enter every tournament we could. I think Stainville and myself still hold the record for most doubles tournaments ever entered. And that was because we had to pay the bills. Like people, they, they, There's going to be a real documentary one day about like, how, how, did, how did you pay the bills back then? And it'd be saying, oh, yeah, we would enter a 2v2 radar always on AK-47s only tournament on BOG. And then it would be uh, Stainville and myself laying behind a, a trailer the whole game, 0-0, zero, zero, and go to seven different ties just to get that one kill. Um, yeah. and you know, those, yeah. those are real stories and that happened more times than I want to admit. And then we would call MLG or try to email them right away and say, Hey, we just won this tournament. We, our rent is due the first of April. Can you please send it? <laughs> so there's been, it's been a crazy yeah. run, but life after esports is good. It's really good. Um, and I have such a good supporting group around me and just, it, it's cool to be the older guy, dude. Like, you know, like it's cool to be the, the OG, the big brother to a lot of these people in the community. Um, cause like I said, I just watched them all grow up. You know, that's why, like, when these companies, when I consult for them, they go, oh, how do you have such good relationships with so-and-so? And how can you get them to try this product? It's like, because I don't view them as so-and-so, you know, they're not influencer X to me. It's like, that's that's my boy that'll text and say, I hope he's doing good. And, you know, same thing goes across the board for most of them. So, yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting one. You know, f- for me, like we were talking um, before we started this call about like, what's my fit in the market? And a, a lot of like what I said I'm working on at the moment is influencer work. And people often come to me when it's hard. So justifying my position in the market is that, you know, if you're launching Apex Legends and you're spending $5 million on influencers and you want 400 people to stream, like that's fine, but that's not for me. Like that's, that's for a platform. But when yeah. you're when you're launching a company, you've just raised a $3 million Series A and you want an influencer to come on board as a shareholder, as an advisor, like that's when you come to someone like yourself or to me, when yeah. you've got to use those personal relationships to coach them. And that's what I find I end up doing most of the time. You know, when I was at, at Corsair, we worked with a fantastic influencer called Oasis on Overwatch, um, mm-hmm. who's very successful, but I was her first ever sponsor and I spent multiple hours on the phone with her and her boyfriend running over the contract, explaining what every single dot point means. Good for you. 
right. and this is this is what this means and this is what this really means and even though it says you only you have to make four social posts per month just on the side don't tell my boss this but two of those can be retweets so don't don't stress about those and i'll send you rots a retweet um and this is why you're being paid this much and this is how much we're paying other people who are similar heights and sometimes you've got to overstep those boundaries as a sponsor well so as a person industry you know to build that for life and then to and then to say look here's a lawyer that you should also talk to who's going to come back and make my life shitty but it's going to make it you know so that you're protected and looked after and that's that's what I think a lot of these brands don't understand that they're paying for a lot of the time when they're working with someone like you or someone like me because these influencers, they're getting 100 emails a day from shitty app developers that are trying to get them to promote stuff for free. They've got everyone who's trying to make them join their new social network. They've got everyone who's trying to get them to do commission-only sales and are trying to use them for their audience. They're trying to set them up with a shitty merch company. They're trying to get them to, yeah. to push the, the 97th G Fuel copy, <laughs> yeah. things yeah. like that. So. You know, you need to have those personal relationships. And on my side, often what I try to say to these people too is you need to give me something solid to go to these people with because I respect them too much to waste their time. 100%. I don't want to go to someone and say, hey, I think I've got this awesome deal with McLaren. You're going to get a free P1 and they're going to fly you to Monaco to the Grand Prix or whatever. And then two weeks later, it doesn't happen because mm-hmm. I lose a lot of face in that situation. And I've been there before where, you know, I've made friends with, say, the chief revenue officer from FaZe. You know, we had a possibility to come through for them, but I thought, was verified and it wasn't but i feel that personal pain where it's like okay i've pulled the friendship card out and said hey you know we've developed a bit of a relationship hear me out because of this but that situation hasn't gone through then and you've only got you know as is explained by jocko willing who's a ex-navy seal and has some fantastic books is you've got leadership capital and you've only got so much leadership capital you can spend and you've got to build it over a long period of time you can't just pull out the card of do this because i said so as a leader you know sometimes maybe you can if it's a life or death situation but there's only a few times in your life where you can pull that out with a person before they say well now you're just trying to be my mum or my dad i'm not going to listen to you anymore so that's yeah and it's turned into a bit of a rant but i think really like that's where i'm trying to explain to a lot of people now and for those who are listening and for those who work with people like you and me like that's a lot of what you're paying for you're paying for those 10 years like you said of of playing these M1G tournaments. You know, I used to drive to a LAN party. Um, my friends would pay for my entry fee. I'd have $0 in the bank and I would use the money that I won there to buy my food at the LAN party and then pay for fuel to get home. And then I'd come home with $0 after winning 125 bucks by winning four tournaments, you know, at, at 20 or six tournaments at 25 bucks a pop. So, you know, we've been there, but it's that struggle and getting to know these people in person and building that professional relationship with them that you're paying to unlock those doors. The same way you can't just pick up a phone and call Floyd Mayweather, like no. you know, and and even if you're Floyd Mayweather's mate, or Joe Rogan talks about this all the time, you know, he's he won't keep a friend if the friend's always trying to get him to do business stuff. But right. he knows that when they come to him with something, it's something serious and it's something real and it's something honest. Well said. I um, and that that's been a situation that I've been in a lot, especially recently, right? Like you want to take care of your friends by providing opportunities. But at the same yeah. time, you you don't want to overdo. Not only because it, it can it can affect you as well, right? Like not only are you putting your reputation on the line, but also I like to make sure the people I'm providing opportunity for are thankful, right? Because there's a lot of people like you can get that money, you can get your sponsors, etc. However, but if I'm bringing you something as well, I want you to make sure that you know that this is something that I passionately care about. That's why I'm big on products. I think products are big. Um, because if, if, if I don't represent a product, then it's like, it, it's just easier to gauge than a service, right? Like, uh, an app or someone that's saying, Hey, I use this for 
whatever. Um, and I, I, I think products for me will always hold a special place because then you can say, listen, I made this and or I represent this or I tried it or whatever. I did consulting in it. Send it out. If they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. That's the easiest part for me. You know, is like, hey, this product is awesome or hey, this product isn't for me. But if you make that this product isn't for me, then then we have a different conversation because that means I'm not doing something right and I'm wasting time. So yeah, exactly, exactly. So what does the next what does the next six twelve months look like for you? You've, you said you got you've got four companies you're balancing at the moment. You're looking at maybe selling some control in Australia. You said before you've got another product you're trying out. So is that a fifth company? Like it sounds like yeah. It's a fifth company with the same partners um, as Control, and it was just another idea I had in the wheelhouse. But the next six months and tw- six to twelve months is fun. Um, I appreciate it. that's that's the best question right there. Is it's it's just madness. I want chaos. I want chaos in all forms. Like you know, I, I love how my teammates, like whether it be for Control or Paper Crowns or any of the companies we're doing. Um, I, I say like I say stressful things um, every two to three weeks or so. I'll say some things like, man, I'm just so pissed. I don't know if this is for me. It's super ups and super downs. And, yeah. um, and I, I think the biggest thing is, is letting the people around me continue to grow. I, I did some financial numbers of what, what we've been providing people over the course of the past year. I'm so proud. Uh, so full pride. Um, I'm, I'm prideful when it comes to kind of taking care of people, telling someone that something is going to happen and then let time take its course. And then that happens. And not needing to say anything, but going like, hey, I, I, I got you. Um, and I think developing. Like right now, I have two companies that we're working on with two major big scale influencers, like maybe potentially top 10 in the biggest of the world. And when that thing drops, hopefully people go, wow, he did that one again. Um, they're just craziness, man. If you want to do some stuff, let's, let's build, let's make something. I'm trying to anything and everything, capitalize, opportunity driven. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things, man. So I'll wrap that up with, I'm excited for six to 12 months. So that's good, man. It sounds like we have a lot in common. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, uh, I feel like a masochist myself sometimes where I, I've done this many times since I started working in the industry back in 2011, where I often ask myself, why? Like, why am I working here? Why do I subject myself to this? Why do I enjoy and hate the heavy workload? Why do I, you know, jump in the deep end and then try to swim out of it. But then I always end up going back in there. And I find sometimes if I've got two days off where I don't have any emails to answer and there's no projects going on, I'm going, what's wrong with me? Let's go. <laughs> let's, let's find something else to do. What a, a question I have for you, and this is a common one that I've asked myself in the past. Um, you said you've got these main founders who do most of these companies across or main business partners. Can you explain a bit about who they are, what they bring, but also how you, how you found them, how you build a relationship with them? They all found me, which is the craziest thing, man. Um, and I got lucky, just, you know, that blessed, lucky situation. There's no nothing special to it. Um, as, as humble as I want to be, I think, you know, like I, I worked really hard. Um, and well, let's just call it what it is. So the control one was Sundance, basically uh, D. Giovanni. Um, he reached out to me and wanted to do an energy drink. I said, there's no way in hell that I'll do an energy drink. Sorry, but I'm just not doing it. Um, definitely oversaturated the market, just not for me. And, um, that led to control. So he financially funded that like himself, he funded it, uh, start to finish. And then I just got a couple, it's, it's all just been headhunters, man. Like when I left G fuel, um, I had a company guys, a billionaire from Scotland. I don't know how many billionaires there are from Scotland or if I should say that, um, a lot of times I keep it quiet, but whatever, if, (laughs) if people find out it is what it is and they supported myself and five other guys for two years now. And they say, Hey, if you have an idea, put it through our incubator, run it out and we'll develop it. And that's like, it's the most blessed, powerful situation you can be in because it's just your brain at work at that time. Right. So like 
Mm. Um, I'll think of an idea. I'll spit it out to about 20 different people. If they like it, they like it. If they don't, then I'll do it anyway. Traditionally, if I want it bad enough, you know how that is. Um, yeah. But yeah, the biggest thing for me is I'm just surrounded by a network of people that have financial ability to fund things that want to be a part of something. And a lot of the times it's just one of those sky, if you believe in it, I'll, I'll believe in it as well. And I think it's just a track record of success, right? So I'm hoping to continue that and not fail, but there's going to be that one failure where I hop on here and go, well, that one didn't work. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and it always, I mean, it always hurts, right? And you have to learn from it, it was the same, you know, talked about we had an influence agency was trying to be the shade of australia and it turned out to be a failure you know we put in money into it and, and it didn't work out and it was a pain point for me it took me at least eight months i reckon to get over that even driving past the house where it was or seeing you know the word mentioned it was a company called shade you know and it's a word you use a lot in australia because it's bloody hot here right. so you know anytime that happened anytime someone would say the word oh let's just go stand in the shade it's like oh no. <laughs> <laughs> like, but no. you know after a while you go okay what can i actually learn from that situation and hey i'm still alive my company still exists and i've got emergency savings in the bank to be able to fund myself to live so what am i worried about you know my health's mm-hmm. fine my family's fine you know i got a dog and a girlfriend that loves me so it's fine let's let's just go and work on the next thing so i see a lot of similarities and it's really interesting you were saying about like people finding you and i think that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that you need to put yourself in the situation where those people can find you you need to like right. generate your own luck right and it's by working right. hard over that long period and a few times throughout my life I remember in 2008 specifically like when i was playing battlefield 2 starting to get into the top leagues thinking to myself it really sucks i spend so long trying to get to know people because it's never going to pay off for me like knowing people is not a commodity i'm not going to make any money out of it and now it's basically my job and like you were saying it's pretty much yours as well is knowing people and i remember over a period of time as well meeting this guy in person who are about to to help him launch a massive business together who's very successful thinking how do i speed run this relationship i've just met this guy but how do i get five years of us knowing each other under our belt instantly so i can start working with him and hey didn't work out but now i've known him for like four years and now we're starting to work together so sometimes you got to put in that time but i am not a patient person but sometimes you just got to grit and you've just got to work through it and say please i'm just going to keep talking to this guy like you said going to keep texting saying hey you good and then eventually they're going to come to you with that opportunity they're going to say skylar you know mercedes wants to sponsor me can you read over this contract i'll give you 10 percent and I want you to represent me. And you say, sure. Or they can say, hey, you know, I've won Cod World Champs. I've got a million dollars in the bank. I want to invest it in a company that, that you run. And I like the idea so you can take it. So yeah. sometimes I wait for it to mature. Classic quote, man. It's not the grades you make, it's the hands you shake, right? Um, and I think that's that's been a big one for me is... Uh, especially now, right? Like everything you're saying, definitely we have a lot of similarities. And I, I, I think the ability to meet people because it's all online man like it's all via just this crazy platform-based system that we've developed and things have changed you know like i'll I'll talk to a bunch of like old school heads that run multi-million dollar companies and and these crazy figures and they say how different things are now um how the frequent flyer game has changed a lot and you don't need millions of miles to make millions of dollars um and it's it's just it's all connection based and providing quality service man i I think that there's no way to hide right like if you're doing good things people are going to see you doing good things no different than i try to tell people if they're trying to be an up-and-coming pro same scenario it's putting yourself in a position um there'd be so many times where i would see uh semi pros that would end up in these pro lobbies for for scrims customs whatever you want to call um, and they, they would be in these lobbies playing eights and, and they would wait probably four hours just to get in the game. 
And then they they get in that game and they looked more high. It's like two in the morning. They're jumping off buildings, just dumping on everyone. <laughs> it's like, you know, and that, that's their opportunity. And then most of the yeah. time they don't get taken serious. You know how it is, like first couple of months. But eventually it's just capitalizing on every opportunity. And that's like, that's the biggest thing. And it sounds like you're doing that as well. It's just capitalizing on every opportunity you're given. So Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the time it's, you know, my, my partners, they were like, I was a consultant for them at the start and had that adage of, you know, A, they wanted to buy an esports team, as everybody did two years ago. Talent was a terrible idea, especially in that market. B, you know, they were looking at a clothing company. But they ended up saying, look, we want to invest in you. We like what you're doing awesome. and you'll find the right things for us to work with. And that's why we've thrown all this stuff against the wall, trying to make things stick over this period of time. You know, my MVP was mentoring, first individual, then group didn't really work out we've still got that there as an offering but it's not something we focus on then it went into esports strategic consulting not enough work in that market you know and it's kind of going around and then we looked at our revenue influences so we a lot of it what we went into that area and a lot of like what you were saying as well about everything being online is one thing that i love about this kid kieran i work with who's at 18 and last year he signed a million dollars in influencer deals and he's done 18 in november and the difference between him and because he's young is literally he just asked the question and that's how he gets the work a lot of the time is that I find myself often, you know, I won't want to walk up to someone because I don't want to seem like I don't know what I'm talking about or I don't want to seem like someone who's just asking questions for the point of it. But because he's young, like that naivety actually works really well in his favor. So and that's true. what I find a lot of times when I work with him is I say to him, hey, we're doing a 12-month unicorn plan. Can you help me source some of these specific influences in this area where I need help? But he'll ask all these questions. He's like, what's the total budget? You know, what percent are you spending on my portion? And even questions that he shouldn't shouldn't ask at all. But sometimes I find myself answering them and then going, shit, should I tell him this? Good like, I don't you. know why I'm telling this. But a lot of it is really he'll get the job because he asks the questions, is that he goes to Bang Energy and he says, hey, do you want more influencers? And he just keeps asking them every couple of weeks. And eventually they say, you know what, I actually do. And I remember sitting there myself at, at Corsair going, I have $10,000 a quarter USD to spend. I have no idea what to spend it on. I wish someone would come to me right now with a good idea right. and say, hey, Chris, I'm running this land event. It's 5K. Do you want to sponsor it? And I'll go, yeah, I'll take a pot shot at that because I'm literally just waiting for someone to come and take my money at this stage. Right. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's just how it runs, right? Yeah, hmm. exactly. Exactly. Got an interesting question from Shark here as well about control because we didn't we didn't talk about it too much. It's an interesting one to me. So I for like a bit of a background of my personal thing. I, I drank Aussie Lent for a while because you can't get soy Lent in Australia, so it's basically very similar to soy Lent. So I have a bit of experience with being a consumer of that of that type of product. But he he was just asking as well, and I'm interested too, is about um, how control is impacting players health and lives so what's the like what's the product market fit for control and how do you justify yourself existing versus say a meal delivery service or a, a pre-made ready-made meal delivery service so i think um the product was created just because you think about the more sedentary lifestyle that we're all all facing right uh whether it become work uh working from home etc players yep. on traveling uh, i see so many players when they travel they throw away their diets their physique or whatever they're trying to do um, yep. I see it's just a lot. It, it, this product isn't just for, it's called control, obviously to play into keyboard, to play into that gaming market, but it's catered to real life. So what that stands for is basically just your real life. We're not here to change the way you eat in general. We're just here to be a part of that. And I think that's the biggest thing is people need to realize, um, when you look at what's in our products, it's a lot of things that we didn't need to add because I know for a fact people don't care about, but they're, they're good for you. 
probiotic, prebiotic, digestive enzymes, MCT oils. Um, you look at uh, fiber, we did BCAA, like a lot of the things that we threw in there are just added cost for me. So it's basically just like, hey, I'm spending more cash to give you a more efficient product that you may or may not care of. And I've heard people go, oh, yeah, why would you buy a protein shake? It's far from a protein shake. In fact, we're, we're not even in that market. We're not a sports supplement company, sports nutrition. We stayed away from all that. Um, so I think for me, control is about kind of this new wave lifestyle and how we can compare to meal delivery services. That's part of your functioning food life, right? So that's that's an issue by itself. We need to change the, the amount of fast food that's ordered, the amount of, you know, we all fall into that rut where it's like you work very hard during the day. You may or may not have groceries. You go to Grubhub. By the time you end up, uh, whatever delivery service that you have, and by the time you end up doing it, you're paying $20, $25. And then that adds up over the course of three three nights in a week right? That, that's a big issue you have, right? That, that's a huge issue. So I think for us, we just want to fit in. We want to find our place and our place is sitting with, with people, these streamers, these people that may or may not be able to get up. And we made our product be tasty with water. That was the biggest thing is I didn't want a product where we had to bring in another product. So I think we sit side by side. I don't really see us having any competitors, even uh, Soylent and Huel is another one just not competitors to us, man. I, I think they're doing their thing. Um, and I, I've tried their products. I don't think it tastes good. <laughs> like, I mean, and that's just what it is. Um, I, I'm not a big fan. For us, we have two grams of added sugar. People go, oh, you have two grams. If you guys know what two grams of added sugar is, you guys know that you probably eat that or drink that um, traditionally a lot more than in this drink of one serving of, of that. And that two grams of added yeah. sugar just comes from real cereal pieces. So we could even take that away if we wanted to, but it adds to that bottom of the bowl taste. So. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I remember, and I can't remember if it was my podcast with Uber, who's an Aussie who casts in the Overwatch World League, or whether it was someone else where, you know, he was saying about traveling, like as a as a talent, as a pro, or even for me as business, it's super hard to eat healthy. Yeah. And it's, it's really tempting every time you go out to have a meeting at a pub, to have a couple of beers and to have a steak and have some gravy with it. And then all of a sudden you've down a thousand calories in a meal, 1500 calories in a meal. But it yeah. was really interesting. His take on it where his quote was something along the lines of you're a loser. If you go out and drink every night when you're traveling for work, like it doesn't make you cool. The fact that you're getting lit all the time because you've got a job to do time and you, you place. Need to wake up and you need to yell on a microphone for 12 hours the next day. So yeah. there's no way that you should be turning up with a, you know, croaky voice. And it was the same thing in my one in my podcast with Toby One, Toby Dawson, a Dota Two professional commentator who's been around since the dawn of time, and another another expat Aussie saying the same thing. You know, when he's got a tournament, he often goes to bed at like eight, nine o'clock the night before because he knows that he needs that long amount of rest to be able to perform in the highest level. And the internationals a thirty five million dollar tournament. So if you're not on during the finals of that, when you're <laughs> one of two commentators, like when are you actually on ever? <laughs> so, exactly. you know, that's the time that you need to be relaxed and, and refreshed and get ready to go. And yeah, definitely resonate what you're saying about ordering the food and stuff as well. I find that really interesting is that, you know, I've always tried to have a few frozen meals in the freezer of, you know, quite healthy um y- quite healthy ingredients themselves because of that same thing. It's like, well, if I order food, it's most likely going to be chips and something else, which is yeah. going to end up a thousand calories, sixteen like six hundred calories, whatever. No matter what, yeah, me too. Same, yeah. And and it's gonna be at least fifteen bucks. So yeah. I know that even by buying this meal, when you buy it often you go, oh seven dollars for a frozen meal, stuff that or ten bucks, but it's cheaper and you so feel better. And <laughs> so you feel that much better in the end. Yeah, the biggest thing is just how much all that adds up. And that that's part of like um, the the marketing that we're gonna be doing in the future. I think right now our marketing is just education based. We want to educate people on what the product is. 
because we, we we still get those people that are like, oh, it's a protein shake. No, it's it's far from. There's a lot of ingredients in there. And and I I sat with two nutritionists um, that were pretty experienced and and well versed in in the matter. And a lot of things got kicked in versus kicked out. It, you know, like my I've, I've been in the sports supplement market, I guess, forever. Um, and that was my biggest thing is I didn't want to come in and be a sports supplement or sports nutrition brand. Wanted to come in more of a a, a food item. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's my I guess concern for you guys, right? Is you're going to have to fight through so much bro science yep. in the protein uh-huh. drink market, where as soon as someone does their first bench press, it's straight to the protein shake with milk afterwards, straight to the weight gainer, um, and it's I think it's just fighting against that that bro science and and you know helping you know educating people, and I think that's a way that a lot of products work in these days, right? Like we yep. did work with a fitness supplier like a fitness product company who makes like massage balls and rolls etc and they had something like 1300 educational videos that went out with their products every time you downloaded or every time you purchased a product it would come with like eight different videos that you could view online to show you different ways to use it because ultimately a foam roller is a round piece of foam so if you don't know about how to use it you don't know how to use it same thing with the drink like you, you know most people don't read this thing last night that was like Humans were, were created and we weren't given our source code and we've been trying to spend the past, you know, hundreds of years reverse engineering like who the hell we are and what we do. Yep. So I think that, you know, if you can provide them with that knowledge and show them a tangible benefit and that's always, you know, a great thing in, in business and, and in marketing, right? Show someone a tangible benefit or a percentage increase or something like that and prove it to them right. and, you know, you guys have a good winner. Appreciate that. Yeah, and I think that's going to be, well, it, it is the goal. It's what we're doing now. You know, we've had really good product success so far. Um, and to be able to come out of the gates with the people we came out with and who we have, I'm super excited. We're going to be big announcement within the next like two, three weeks. It was supposed to already be out by now, but the creative behind the project is taking a little bit. Um, but yeah, we're going to have a powerhouse roster of people to help us kind of put this message out. And the biggest thing is it's not going to be a, like a heavy 80% off, 60% off sales driven company. It's going to be hey, this is what we are. This is what we bring to you. And we hope that you expect that every time, you know, so. Yeah, and it's funny. I was looking through your website before we were talking, and I obviously see the cod influence there. The scump, the guy who we talked about a hundred times. So the reason yeah. he came up is because I just watched him play before our call. Yeah, um, yeah, and I see a tattoo you were mentioning on there too. So obviously, you know, you live and breathe what what we've been talking about the whole time, right? You know, hundred percent, man. And that, that's what's crazy is there's a lot of players that I want to give, I guess, sponsorships to and bring onto this thing, but we're doing it different. Um, we're actually trying to carve out a little bit of equity for some people on this thing. And you know, the drill, um, yeah. that's important for me. And when it gets to that, you can't really, you, you can't offer that to everyone, you know? Um, but we have, we have some big ones that'll, that'll happen over the course of the next, like I guess, two to three weeks. And I think once we can get a big, big market of people in and on board and start really having fun, that's going to change and separate us. Um, by this time next year, hopefully we've won esports uh, commercial products of the year. That's, that's the goal. <laughs> that's the goal for That'd me. Yeah, as, as with someone who um, who we work with quite closely, who's from the traditional investment market, he likes to say you can't sprinkle around equity. Yes. Sayings, but so I definitely agree. And, you know, I had a video that I recorded on the couch a few nights ago about that same thing, about getting influencers involved, giving them equity, giving them ownership. Because there's yep. so many case studies of it working so well, you know, with um, Team Astralis, for example, you know, other player-owned organizations like Alliance, you know, retaining players and keeping people around. Because they really are you know, invested in what's right. going on in both 
both both literally and and you know theoretically they're awesome. invested in the growth you know and they've they've got something more to retire on than just their 50k cod salary like you were saying which at yeah. the moment is deserved and, and hopefully will grow but they've actually got some ownership in some company hopefully they can get some dividends or be bought out or something like that in the future it's the the house investment classic house investment you got to make sure that you see what this will be worth in five to ten years versus what it is now right so yeah, that, yeah. that's been a challenge in itself but and I'm, I'm really waiting for like you were saying for like five cod pros to get together and buy a hotel <laughs> no, <100%. laughs> or apartment blocks or it, something some, like that. <laughs> something and it doesn't even have to be the cod pros like let's just start start a firm where it's basically just the influencer driven right but but it's influencers own and influencers choose what they're investing in etc so uh, yeah. yeah, the future is bright. Yeah, for <laughs> yeah fantastic. Let's, let's do it, man. <laughs> well, we're both busy, man, and I've, I've taken a lot of your time today. It's obviously getting a bit late there for you, coming up to lunch for me. So thanks so much for coming on, mate. For, for anyone who's watching through the LinkedIn Live, the Twitch, or is listening to this podcast, or watching the VOD on YouTube later on, where can they follow you and support what you're doing? Skylar Johnson on everything. Um, yeah, just at Skylar Johnson. Um, and I appreciate it. I want to say thank you to you. I, I know we, we struggled to get this one on the books, but once we like get, it. It, it was one of those things, man, where I was really looking forward to it. And obviously this has been great. Um, after this, hopefully I might have some opportunities to provide for you as well. Um, just to kind of help, help that Rolodex people that I'm surrounded by just grow. So make sure we stay in contact and appreciate anyone listening or that will be listening, I guess. So, Fantastic. Thanks, mate. And, and thanks to everyone who's tuning into this episode. We've got a bunch more guests coming out over the next two weeks. We've received a absolute monumental amount of inbounds. And for anyone listening, we're always seeking more professional players or ex-pros. So if you have anyone in mind, that's always a hard, um, a hard piece of the industry to reach out to. We'd love to chat to them. Thanks for yeah. listening, guys. We'll catch up soon. Thank you, guys. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 